Sanderson, the sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. Sanderson, the sidekick, back with you. We are previewing ETSU football versus the Catamounts in the Blue Ridge border battle. We'll talk to the brand-new head women's basketball coach, Simon Harris, and fail downs. Fail downs. Who's fail downs. With Simon Harris will be better, yours or mine? Uh, yours. I'm going to say yours. So okay, mine. support each other on this. All right, yeah. Okay. He was great, though. I forgot he to ask him if he played in the Dome till after the interview, and then we went into that. But he, he did play a game in the Dome. He just has such a way about delivering everything, I think. Uh, we had a great talker at the head of this program for a long time. I don't think that you're going to be disappointed in the fact that he can do that as well. And the amount of um, acclaim that he comes to ETSU with in coaching circles and such, I mean, this is going to be a fun conversation. As we saw with yours, it was, I think, really informative, really good just to get to know you type thing. And um, I look forward to him. He said right after, if you need anybody for the pod. Oh, yeah. So Classic mistake. Classic it, mistake. He said the pod. So I'm excited. Yeah. He's probably been listening for 10 years, although we've been on for two or three. Is it three? Three. I don't have any. I don't care. All right. Let's talk a little bit about uh, football first. Then we'll talk women's basketball. Then fail downs. Then uh, bold predictions. And if you want to go ahead and just stop bold predictions the rest of the year, I'm totally fine with that right now. I am considering it. That's perfect. All right. Uh, So West Carolina, let me just go over this. I watched um, a little bit of the game. I watched. I actually uh, listened because Robert Harper had the game on towards the end of the game against Mercer. I watched a little bit of the first half, listened to the most second half because I was driving, obviously tough to watch in the um, iPad that Robert had was in the backseat. So I wasn't able to watch a whole lot of it just listening to it. But going back and watching the first half, the difference in Western Carolina and the win against the Citadel to me was a lot of defense, and it was just simply tackling. Man, they flew to the ball, made plays, you know, one guy could bring a guy down the Citadel. Mercer, guys were breaking tackles, and I'm not talking like, you know, people were shifting this and doing whatever. I mean, they were just running through arm tackles, and I don't know why. It may be just Mercer a little more dynamic in what they do offensively. Literally one play, they're in a wing tee. Next play, they're shotgun. Next play, they're pistol. Next play, they're under center in a flex bone. I mean, they're just all over the map every play and just trying to confuse you, right? It's it's basically the, the triple option with some more passing out of a lot of different formations, but they're just trying to confuse you. And West Carolina, to me, looked confused. But the tackling was just so much different. And West Carolina made, you know, a lot of plays. They blocked a kick in the game. They were able to get a, a huge kick return in the game. They had an interception in the game. They had short fields, but they could not get off the field defensively. And it just, you know, it was a situation where I just felt like watching both those games has to drive Coach Mark Spears crazy because if you watch the performance defensively against the Citadel, and again, it was just tackling. There was a lot of one-on-one opportunities where the Citadel couldn't break a tackle, and there were a lot of one-on-one opportunities where Mercer would just run right by people and somebody would just flail an arm. And and that's got to be frustrating for him because the defense played so well in one game and the next game, it looked like they never tackled before. So, uh, I don't know which West Carolina defense you're going to get. Uh, I think their offense is starting to come around. Um, they clearly busted huge plays versus the Citadel. A couple long runs uh, that either went for a touchdown or, or got them in great scoring position. And they had chances at bigger plays at Mercer. It didn't quite come out. But Glover, they allowed him to throw the ball a little more. You can tell he's starting to get, I think, a little more confident in the uh, – uh, passing attack, they took a couple shots deep where in the Citadel game, he didn't throw a ball over like eight yards. 
or at least if he did, I didn't see it on tape. There were there were four or five passes, 40 yards down the field. Um, there were also several passes um, to the 30-yard line, and nobody was around the 30-yard line. Like I don't like there was a couple crossing routes he threw that I don't know if he's on the wrong page or the receivers are on the wrong page, but he would throw a ball to a spot and the 30-yard line would make the catch because there was nobody there uh, either way. So I don't, you know, I don't know what Glover what he ran at Penn and all that other stuff. They did let him, I think he had a rushing touchdown in the game. He doesn't show a lot of read option like Tyree Adams, but in short yard situations, he will sort of little Houdini, right? Because they run the ball with Spencer, they run it, they run it, and all of a sudden, boom, he pulls and he gets a a short yard situation. So I think that's something ETSU will certainly have to key on in the contest is short yard situation. Will they hand it off to Spencer, or is that the time when Glover actually decides to keep it? really had his first success running the football in that game against Mercer since he's been playing quarterback for uh, Western Carolina. 12 for 51 and a score, and before that you look back and there was no game in which he had more than 15 yards. The quarterback situation is kind of interesting because I think that everybody in the league had Will Jones penciled in as the post-Tyree Adams guy. Uh, Obviously Adams was dynamic in every single way that he could be dynamic when he was on the field. Unfortunately for Western Carolina, that did not help them last year um so jones seemed to be the guy and he did start in the fall but hasn't thrown a pass this spring doesn't sound like we're going to see him at quarterback going forward um he was the one that took all the reps with adams unavailable in 2019 when he was out for a variety of reasons that was decent not much of a big play threat but completed at a high percentage didn't hurt you with the interception and i don't think that you can hold against again a guy that we're not going to see at quarterback this week will jones with those three games that they played in uh, the fall. Liberty, North Carolina, I mean, had for the first time in however long, and granted there weren't as many teams playing FBS football this year uh, as there typically are in the fall, but, I mean, they were at the time that Western Carolina played them, number 17 in the country. Liberty was number 22. And Eastern Kentucky, a team that's beaten a couple of Southern Conference opponents that I I don't think they expected to um, have such an easy time with in the Citadel and Western Carolina that – uh, game against Western Carolina in the Opportunity Bowl um, back on November 21st. So Jones gone from that position at least, and Glover in, and he just has not been able to get it out to some players that I think still can really make some plays. Uh, you know, they're certainly young at that position at wide receiver, but they do have some pass catchers back. I think four of their top five pass catchers from last year are back, if you include Spencer, but he just hasn't been able to find him. Kosinki is a guy that has done some all right things in the past game over his time at Western Carolina, and I think he's coming. I think he's going to start to. He was he missed a couple last two games, I think, with injury. And so he only had you know I think it was what seven or eight catches you know those uh, first few games of the season, and so there's a lot of interesting things that you're going to see in that passing game if they can get it on track. But um, you know a couple other guys, DJ Thorpe. Um, had, I think, Patton. Is Patton back? Yeah, Daquan's back. He's back. So there's some proven guys in the pass game. But Glover has just not been able. There's been a couple of games where he hasn't even reached 100 yards. So that's been a struggle. It's it's really been an ETSU setup. Uh, The two guys that hurt him the most, I believe, is Kosinki and uh, Spencer. Kosinki, by the way, has missed the last couple of games, but only four catches since the Liberty. Right. And, 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 again, I think people, I mean, he gets a lot of accolades nationally as a, one of the top tight ends in the country. And I think it's easy when you look at the roster and go, who am I going to take away? Let's try to take that guy away in the passing game, right? So I think he gets a, 
a lot of attention. The Patton's missed a couple of games. I think he's back too. So, I've, you know, Kosinki's caused and Patton have caused ETSU some issues in the past game. But Spencer, I just went and was looking up some of his numbers. He's got six touchdowns against the Bucks. Um, now, granted, he had four in the uh, 49 to 10 thrashing in 2017. But he, but he's had a touchdown 2018, had a touchdown 2019, had some good numbers in um, both those games, really. So he's had a lot of success um, against ETSU. I think he's had almost five, 600 yards in three games, if you include receiving and rushing and six touchdowns. So he's a guy that certainly has performed well against ETSU. Again, I mentioned the two tight end receivers, but the receiver right now, you know, is the, the freshman Jones you got to be concerned about. Um, great name, Calvin Jones, right? And so he's, he's doing a little bit of everything for him. He's got off to such a good start as a pass catcher and has been dynamic. They now got him on kick returns and punt returns. So they're just trying to find a way to get the freshman involved. Uh, good size. Um, breaks high. It's one of those things where sometimes you say a guy weighs like 180, 190, and you're going, eh, and then, like, he runs through people, and you're going, well, that's, you know. you could. And so you see Calvin Jones has the opportunity to do that. He's been the go-to guy for Glover. Um uh, now, they do a lot of bubble screens. They do this, that, and other. But the few shots they took down the field, and, again, I don't think they connected on any of them, the four deep shots I took. But they didn't take any real deep shots against the Citadel. So I'm assuming they were thinking, you know, we've got to f- push the ball down the field at some point. As a matter of fact, I think Western Carolina intercepted the pass at around the 40-yard line of Mercer. In the very next play, they threw it to the end zone, and they overshot uh, Glover, overshot uh, Jones. So they, it, it is – they're starting to do different things than earlier in the season watching some of the early Western Carolina games versus Furman and, and to start the year and even against the Citadel. So I don't know if that's Glover getting a little more comfortable with things. I don't know if they realize they've got to change some things up. I don't know if the run game has been opening things up. Um, offensively, a little bit of a challenge because there were a lot of penalties, a lot of things that kind of got Western Carolina behind the eight ball. They tried to throw the ball more on first down. And, again, we talked about that with ETSU. If you get second and ten, it just makes things. For West Carolina right now, the one thing I will say is they are they are tempo now. And I've, I've watched, you know, they Citadel, they made the change. I think that's helped them out tremendously because especially if they get a first down, their big thing to do is run and snap the ball again. They're not all the time fast, 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 Sanford, not all the time kind of run and shoot BMI. But they get a first down. They're going to snap the ball quickly. They're going to hand it off. They're going to try to get you, you know, either switching or doing something. But they go tempo, especially after a first down. That first down play uh, right after a first down is generally snapped 8 to 10 seconds. I get it super fast. And depending on how that play goes, it may go super fast again. If it's not, they'll slow things down. So they switch some tempos a lot. And I think it will be important for ETSU to control the tempo. This is a team that's just really struggled with every facet of the second to last in the league in points per game, last in scoring defense, last in total offense, last in total defense. And they rush it well with Spencer, and we know he's been around. He's having his best year. There's no question about that. He's been, though, someone that's come on over the last couple of years. Uh, but the team is last in the league in rushing defense by 60 full yards. And I know everything is not equal this year with, I think it was, what, Mercer Citadel and Western Carolina playing in the ball, and no one else did. I think it was those three, right? Uh, Chattanooga had the one game, right? Chattanooga had the yeah, one game. Yeah. So – Outside of that, I mean, yes, you're not going to have all stats be equal, and there were some teams such as Western Carolina that had to play some higher-level opponents, but still, 60 full yards, that's no accident. They're second to last in the league in pass offense, third to last in pass defense. They do well in the return game, um, and we talk about 
you know, special teams being so important. And Mark Spear, I talked to him for our pregame show, which will be on Buccaneer Sports Network at 1130, uh, 1 o'clock kickoff course on Saturday. He said in that win over the Citadel, that was one of the things he pointed out, special teams was good. You do have to watch out for their uh, coverage units and their kicking game because they can lack on a consistent basis. Pass rush isn't much, just 11 sacks made games, allowing almost 28 first downs per game. That's six more than any other team in the league, and 29 of 101 on third downs last in the league. And that's another thing that Coach Spear pointed out. He said, where do you think that this team has really consistently struggled? And he, I gave him the option. I said, you know, is it inconsistency in the passing game? Is it first and second down? You always like to point this out, right? First and second down, is that affecting what you're able to do on third down because you're so far behind the sticks? And he said, no, it's just been – third down inconsistency throwing the ball on third down and you can look at the stats and see that so it'll be interesting to see what they're able to do it is an incredible stat I found that they've been bottom two in the league each of the last 14 seasons in rush defense since 2006 they've been bottom two for that period of time that is a good deep dive I mean it is unbelievable like you know you get a couple years back and you're like well I just wonder how long this goes and I got back to 2006 it's a defense that's given up 30-plus in four of the five games and only give up 14 to the Citadel. So for ETSU, I'm going to be curious to see what they do at the quarterback position because Tyler Idell put it out on Twitter. I, I think he was very aware that he could have done a little bit more to make things a bit easier on the Buccaneers um, last week. Uh, didn't. Still got the victory, and winning can solve a lot of those things, but Coach Sanders has made no bones about it throughout this season that Brock Landis and Cade Weldon are players that have come on done well, uh, at least in practice. Haven't seen it in the games yet. I think Landis appeared the one time and was one for five. But Game looked fast for him on that day. And so he's had more time now. It's only five throws, but you look on tape say, what can I do better here, here, and here? We know Randy Sanders is going to drive his quarterbacks to improve constantly. How has he taken that teaching? And if he does get in the game on uh, Thursday or, uh, I don't know, when he gets in the game, I'm not sure how it will go, but how does he apply that? Because the quarterback position, I think – for the usual free TSU, aside from the heroics of Austin Herrick in 2018, has been a weakness consistently. If you can get even average to above average play out of that position, I think with the way the defense is playing right now, this can be a championship team. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, and it's interesting to see how things are going to shake down over the next few weeks because it could set up a mega showdown. You know, in the last week of the regular season, if, if things go well, it's got to be my, my dream come true. <laughs> you know that? If I could get that at the last regular season. But ETSU struggled so much offensively. Western Carolina just has been a sieve defensively. I mean, just every, everybody is scoring. Everyone's getting yards. And ETSU can't seem to get any yards. So kind of see how does this play out. Can they? Because, you know, last year – even though the offense was really, really hampered last year. What did they do? 36 handoffs, 166 yards for play homes yeah. and a couple scores. So um, that that's what they were able to do. Rodell had a touchdown call back. Keltner, rare missed field goal for him. And then in overtime, you just kick a field goal. They end up getting it. But the last two years, you're looking at a triple overtime game. You're looking at a single overtime game. ETSU needs a game that they can put up a solid offense, you know, 200 yards rushing, 250 yards in the air. You know, 35 or more points on the board. You know, I keep waiting for them to take the leap offensively to be a championship-caliber team. I think that is it. I think the defense has proven by looking at some of the sheer gaudy numbers around the league when teams that don't play ETSU and how they perform, then I think it's 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 evident to see. Kicking game is there for the Bucks. Defense is there for the Bucks. Offense is going to be the number one question mark. 
and how are they going to be able to try to put it all together? I'll say this too. Do you know the last time the Bucks won a more than a one-score game in a Southern Conference game? Because I, I guessed two games and was wrong myself. So it's 18 of the last 27. So 18 of the 27, they play the Sanders. More than one score. Yeah, the, 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 last, the last more than one score win was Gardner-Webb, 45-0. Now, 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 let me say this. FCS win. I'm not counting Shorter, Limestone, Mars Hill. So that was Gardner-Webb. Then you go back, and I wanted to say, okay, well, when's the SOCON? When was a SOCON more than seven? I'm not even counting a two-point conversion. More than seven points in a win in Southern Conference play, I, and it 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 took it shocked because I thought there were two games for sure I knew were going to be right, and they were not. There is literally nothing that has come. Twenty seventeen VMI. It was a twenty four to six win. Sure, okay, I do remember that game. But yeah, no, I, same thing. When I when I went back and I'm looking at, at last year, I was like, okay, I thought they beat Mercer. For some reason, I thought they beat Mercer by ten. It was five. Then I go back 2018, I was like, surely they won one of those miracle games. Yeah. But I no, they didn't. Yeah. So then I go to 2017, and sure enough, there's VMI just staring you in the face. I'm like, oh, I do remember that. But it was one of those, I think that was Udinsky's, right, freshman year, and he, he had uh, he had okay numbers. He was just trying to figure it out. But And ETSU had a revenge on its mind because um, I want to say it was the, last, uh, the year before that, VMI just smoked, smoked ETSU up there in Lexington. I'll even add one. To your stat, it's the only game that the Bucks have won since the SoCon. Since we returned, oh my goodness! In Southern California, well, I, didn't, I didn't even look further back. Seven points. So I, I, that's I, insane. That's it. One, you've got one so, and they got a lot of Southern Conference wins. If you if you want to break it down, yeah. I mean, in four years, but because I, I guess yeah, you're right. Because the first year, right, they beat Western by a field goal. They beat Sanford by two or whatever it was on the game-winning field goal. Yeah, two conference wins. And, and then the next year, where they have two again two. in seventeen. Six. Yeah, and, and you got that. Two, two, six, one. Two, two, six, one, so 11. 11, they've got one. <laughs> one out of 11. 13, well, 13 if you include this year. So, one of 13. 12 of the 13 that they've won have been by this. This is where I think, you mentioned the Gardner-Webb game. This is personally, and maybe you'll disagree, maybe you'll agree, but I think where you're going to be able to start to tell if this is a championship caliber team or not. We've only had three games. Didn't get to play Wofford, who, again, that's the last checkbox on the list of Southern Conference teams. I think of really having the program fully back because you've won a championship, you've had the amazing story, you've got a new stadium, so on and so forth. You haven't beat Wofford. Not going to have the chance this year, but without that game, it makes it really difficult for me to tell. Like With this small sample size, they've been all one-score games, as we've talked about. Haven't really put together a full 60 minutes. I don't think you'd say that they did against the Citadel. Randy Sanders certainly wouldn't if you caught him at the half. So, Western Carolina, can ETSU do what they did to that Gardner-Webb team? Like you said, it was 45 nothing. They should have crushed them. They should have put their foot on the throat of their opponent that day. I think that was homecoming. It was a celebratory affair. And once everything was said and done, the results showed you that when they needed to, they had it in them to take that next step, to go to that next level, to win a game in decisive fashion. Now... Would they do that the rest of the year? No, they wouldn't. But they had a perfect game in them because they played just about perfect that day. Do they have that against a Western Carolina team that is not good at pretty much anything? If they don't, if they don't win this by more than the score, I'm going to have some major questions. 
if they do, I'm going to, I guess, have to be surprised as well, simply because they've only not won one. Not team. done it. I mean, I mean, you're sitting off the championship team, couldn't seem to squeak. Uh, all they had to do was squeak out wins. It's weird. If, if ETSU wins by a single score, you just go, well, that's what we do, I guess. And if, if they win by 28, do you think, well, they turn the corner? Or they, do, 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 you, do you crown them, right? Do you didn't? <laughs> it is funny, though, because you look at the two years that you've had under Randy Sanders drastically to the better in one score game, not in the other games. I know I've said this a bunch of times, but, like, it has to even out, right? Doesn't it? Like, there was the magic of 2018, and that all ma- added up because of the situation, because of the guys that have been here. They started out with nothing, built themselves up to a team that could contend, and then ultimately win a title. Like, that was the story. Like, okay, you got the letdown the next year. Those guys aren't here. The other ones haven't really had to carry the load. They were able to rely on that senior veteran leadership to just will them to victory. So you had it drastically the other way the next year. Is it possible for a team to have two magical runs like that in a three-year span? Because to me, it seems like once in a lifetime. No, it it, it does. Uh, because every, I hope I'm wrong. Right, I agree. Uh, like I said, it's just it, you start looking at some of this, it just doesn't. How long can it go? I mean, it just. Just, I feel like winners are there, right? They figure out how to win. And I mean, the, the question was, and I don't want to oversimplify because it 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 feels like it's taking shots at people. But Austin Herrick had a little bit of, I don't want to lose. But it wasn't just him. There were fifth Correct. year seniors on there that were like, I'm not going to lose. It seems like that lightning in the bottle 2018 got some of the young guys invigorated. Those guys weren't on the team 2019. Right, Herrick wasn't on the team, and I'm certainly not saying Trey Mitchell did what he could considering three or four quarterbacks down the road who they didn't know he was going to start. But there were some guys, I think, looking around for the fifth-year scene. Now, all of a sudden, it feels like some of those guys, the Tyree Robinsons and stuff, have turned into those guys. Sure. I remember 18. I remember the guts it took to win. I didn't like last year. Do it this year. So, yeah, probably oversimplifying that somewhat, but I kind of feel like there's some truth to that. That maybe everyone bought into, you know, this is what we do. We just win. We do whatever. And maybe, you know, they thought it was going to happen, but they didn't know how to will it to happen. And now maybe you're starting to get it because defensively, I mean, they tried to will the the game against Furman to happen, right? I mean, it's at their goal line stand. Robinson's run down the field. He thought he forced a turnover. I mean, there's a lot of things to, to go there. But it's still, again, and I'm not blaming or, or casting on one particular position, but it just feels like if the quarterback play would would have been better the last year and three games, that ETSU would have more points on the board and rolling. And it, 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 there's more things that go into that. It's, it's just not that simple. But I think it's easy for someone to sit there and just look at that particular thing and go, that's why they're not winning or that's why they're not. And I think it, it's more than that, but it certainly is – a huge piece of why ETSU is or is not winning. So I guess you look at the Gardner-Webb game, and Austin Herrick wasn't necessarily spectacular in that one. 17-24 to 24 for 184. Didn't have any touchdowns, but he had a pair of 100-yard rushers. Uh, and, and if I'm not mistaken, wasn't that the uh, Nasir player? Uh, was that the game Nasir player caught the interception for a touchdown? I don't think so. Okay, no. But you had a ton in the run game. You didn't necessarily need your quarterback to be great. Austin Herrick showed up when he needed to be great, right? In that Furman game, you needed your quarterback to do an almost impossible thing, go 99.9999 yards in two minutes. And for a younger guy who's still figuring it out, 
doesn't have that many game reps. It's such an impossible position to put him in. Not only there, but I think maybe the one that he's in right now. Like, Randy Sanders' expectation of quarterbacks, and rightfully so because he's been around some of the best at the collegiate level in the game's history, is incredibly high. And that's got to be tough to manage as someone that is younger trying to find his way and trying to just go out and put together average to above average performances. Want to be great, right? But but sometimes it's just get you through. I talked to Austin Herrick actually yesterday, and he was talking to me again about how he was rehashing some of his days, and he just said, look, I had no idea in an offense like that what I was doing. And he talked about it to you and me when he was here. Like, it is so difficult to digest sometimes all that stuff. And for somebody that doesn't have the game reps, is younger, hasn't been in the collegiate level that long, it's going to take time, which is tough because you have windows in collegiate football, right? Like, you've got a group here, like you said, that maybe is now ready to step into those shoes that they experienced as younger players in 2018. And the piece right now, and I'm not saying the run game's been spectacular the last six quarters because it hasn't, right? But Jacob Saylor's had 12 for 123 against Western Carolina last year, or two years ago, I should say, and then it was Quay Holmes last year. You're going to be able to run the ball because Western Carolina has been consistently bad stopping the run for 15 years. Could this be a semi-coming-out party for a Rydell, for a Landis, right? Like, it would be nice to see that progress and that hard work, you know, pay off right now. Because I do think Tyler, Tyler Rydell has made progress. I do think that Brock Landis can make progress over the time that he had those five snaps and now he's, or those five throws, and now he's coming you know, into a situation where he's going to play, uh, possibly play more, you know, over this weekend. Um, the question will be, you know, will we see it demonstrated? Will we see that step taken against a team that is really, I think, in a worse position than Citadel? I know that they beat them, but they have not consistently been competitive. Citadel was consistently competitive. Western Carolina has been down and out in a lot of games early. Yeah, and and they had the one year a few years ago where they thought they were going to get the at-large. They rested a couple of players, and they had the, the Trez Newsome, and I don't think it was the 17 team, and then ended up not getting in. And it cost them because they ended up losing the game, resting guys, assuming they had already been in the play, which mm-hmm. I don't – if you're Western Carolina – and I'll say this, same thing for ETSU. There, there was no no assumption that if the Bucks didn't win the league, it was guaranteed to get in, right? The, the name's not there. The recognition. Like, you have to have sometimes things go your way. You know, I would never bank that. That would not be something I would be sitting there going, well, I can just rest guys. Don't care if I win this game because I'm in, I'm in the playoffs. Because if you're West Carolina, you should never – ETSU – I don't think it's in a position still to sit there and go, yep, I'm in the playoffs. Like, you, you need to make sure you earn your way into the playoffs. You know, don't take any unnecessary losses. And so I think we're getting to bowl predictions later. Clearly, uh, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to – is going to score a lot. I mean, just All right, we'll step aside for a timeout. What are we going to talk? Women's basketball. New head coach, Simon Harris, sits down with Mike Gallagher after this timeout, saying no sidekick of the Buccaneers Sports Network. Over the last 70 years, Johnson City Power Board has had a few different looks we've remained the same trusted partner you rely on. Now, we've changed our name to Bright Ridge to match our vision, to deliver on our promise of great service you can count on, embracing common sense technology to strengthen the communities we serve. We're glad to be your public power provider. Bright Ridge, new name, renewed promise. Learn more at brightridge.com.
idea Bach always is, but especially for this man who is in his first couple of days of being an ETSU Buccaneer, the new head coach of ETSU women's basketball, Simon Harris. And coach, welcome. Congratulations. When I say those words, new head coach, Simon Harris, what's the first thing that comes to mind? First thing that comes to my mind is this appreciation. It's, uh, I am very, very, very thankful for the opportunity, first of all. And that's, you know, a testament to President Noland and also Mr. Carter and also Doc Sander, who really was influential in helping me through this process. And just it's, it's really a, a dream realized, you know. It's uh, my dad, lifelong coach. I just grew up around the game and just so excited to finally be able to pursue my dream in the way that I can and kind of help where I'm needed. Yeah, Larry, your dad, 27 years of mm-hmm. collegiate basketball head coaching, and he coached you. Yes. He stayed. Seeing his life and what path he chose, did you always know that you wanted to go into coaching, or when did that become apparent to you? Yeah, I, uh, I'd i say around the age of 12. I, um, I was very fortunate when my dad was at North Carolina State University. He was, you know, he'd be in and out, working out players. He'd go on the road recruiting in July, which back then was the entire month, and um, leading into that, I was very fortunate to be around the women's program and Coach Kay Yao and her staff. And when I was around 12 or so, she just made a kind of off-the-cuff remark of, uh, I think you'd really have a good temperament for this and you would possibly be a really good coach one day. And that really stuck with me and resonated with me. And um, that's kind of when I knew. I, I kind of got the age for it and the bug. I was fortunate that both of my parents, they never impressed anything upon me. They didn't even force me to play basketball, let alone get into the coaching profession. But that was, that was a, definitely a big milestone for me. In terms of what brought you to this point as a women's basketball mm-hmm. head coach, you're on the men's side with Dayton, and you mentioned it, that maybe there was uh, a couple of comments along the way that said, uh, you know, you could be a really good coach on the women's side, yeah. you know, Simon Harris. But making the transition, what led you to go at the time that you did from the men's side to the women's side, and what was that like? I, I was, I'm one of the few that, going through the course of college basketball, I actually did want to coach women's basketball. I, I just think the fundamentals of the game and the intricacies are a lot better and more suited to, I mean, I'm, I'm a basketball aficionado. I love the game. I love everything about the game and uh, was always fascinated in coaching that side of things. So um, I essentially was, I was afforded opportunity to get into the business by Arch Miller and he gave me that chance at the University of Dayton and that was kind of my way in. And then from there, he always encouraged me to build relationships and I was very fortunate to have a really good relationship with the head coach at the University of Dayton at the time down the hallway and uh, when the job did open, I actually was sitting in his office when he got the phone call, and he looked over and said, hey, would you uh, would you ever want to coach with me? And I went, I'll be right back. <laughs> I went and spoke to Arch. I grabbed my stuff. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> was about 27 steps. Uh, not like I counted or anything, but then uh, made the 27-step trek back, and then that's where we began, and I was just very blessed and fortunate to be there. Right place, right time. Quick stops at North Carolina State and Ohio State. Mm-hmm. You had to find a way to make an impact quick because those two stops were Seems like that's a transferable quality now. Yeah. Taking over a program that is looking for a turnaround, stepping right in and making a difference. For what sure. did you find the key was to having success or trying to do that? The key to having success in that was uh, I'm a firm believer in the investment of the people that are there. I think it's you can't go into scenarios and try to change. I think you try to amplify, if you will. And I was just very fortunate that Coach Westmore brought me back to North Carolina State and was able to kind of. I think give them a fresh look at, well, hey, ladies, I went through these paces. I played in these buildings. I took the same classes with your professors. And that's when, you know, that rapport was built and then it's able to translate on the floor. You know, it's the, uh, 
I went to these workouts. We have similar strength routines and just being able to speak truth into that. And I think that was a, a big value for both of us, uh, the young ladies and also myself. And then at Ohio State and talking with Coach McGuff, I think there's just more of a need for just being more present um, and was able to fill that with a, a bunch of amazing young ladies. I either text or spoke with all of them on the way down here yesterday, and it's just really a testament to the type of people he brings in there. And so it really makes that easy. It's you can just go in and be your genuine, authentic self and then just try to help where you can. So you take over here at ETSU. There's a lot of open jobs out there. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I think 99% of coaches, whether it's women's basketball, men's basketball, at the collegiate level, at the pro level, aspire to be a head coach. For sure. Why was this the right job? Why ETSU rather than there's a couple other open jobs? In fact, even in the state, why yeah. ETSU? Yeah. ETSU stands out to me. I'll put it this way. Uh, after going through the process of talking with the three gentlemen that I mentioned earlier, who obviously they, they run the university and or the athletic department or had in the past, they really opened my eyes to what this place is and the direction that they want to go in. And I mean that societally. I mean that in all walks of life. And then the basketball piece was really intriguing because it's a situation that you can come in and try to help improve the scenario. Uh, so this job to me was really special because there's so many different aspects of it as a human being that you can approach, that you can kind of dive into and, you know, you, you can help improve yourself, but then you have an immediate impact with a lot of younger people and then also your peers. Um, so basically the once I got to know the university from the eyes of the people who are really higher up and in charge here about how passionate they are and where they see what they're doing here, that really made me want to be the head coach at this university. So you look at a program, you mentioned it a bit earlier, three years of struggles on the court, a roster that has a couple of players in the transfer portal, a roster that will be in flux simply because of the year that it is, it's a free one eligibility-wise. You know the recruits coming in. Do you think this is a program that needs an overhaul, or do you see that there are pieces within it right now that you can build around? Yeah, I absolutely think there are pieces. And, uh, again, another part of the intriguing part of the basketball journey. Our roster is – there's good basketball players on this roster. And I think it's just a fresh voice, a fresh amplification, if you will, like we talked about before, is just something that may help us go in the direction that we want to go in. So I'm very much looking forward to getting on the floor with these young ladies that I met this past weekend and, and looking forward to meet them further and build towards that family unit and understanding of we have a lot of things that we're trying to achieve together and the areas that we want to move forward in and get positive results. So I'm very excited to dive in with what we have now and just kind of go from there. Talk about the challenge there because you say build a family unit. I mean, we can talk about winning and losing games. Yeah. We can talk oh, yeah. about sitting in the office and you know doing the procedural things that you do as a basketball coach, but those are heavy words there, building a family unit. Definitely. It takes, it seems like from the outside looking in and not having been a head coach myself, but a lot of time to build trust, a lot of time to think win over for sure. people to make sure that you know they realize that you're there for them, you're for there sure. for their best interest. For sure. How do you do that? Uh, you invest in people. I mean, and I'm a firm believer that I kind of mentioned a little earlier is I like to dive in and get to know who you are. I want to know what motivates you, what you do like, what you don't like, and kind of what makes you tick. And I, I really feel that the best leaders that I've always been around are people that I felt I had a genuine connection with. When I'm telling you something, I know my 
it's going to be heard in the right way because you've invested time and I know that you actually care about what I'm saying. So I'm firm on that. I'm huge on that. I think it is it's how I've always been. It's the way I was raised. Uh, I mean, even in my relationship now with my girlfriend, I mean, we, we have genuine conversations. I wouldn't want anything else. So uh, more so, the investment in people and having real talks and because I want a collaborative environment. I want that unit and that family feel as to where, you know, a lot of programs say family. It's on a T-shirt, and they break it down, and they say it, and they walk away. I want to know these young ladies for the rest of their lives, and I want them to know me. So I feel the only way that you can move forward and do real work, especially, you know, athletics, the academic community, everything, is to genuinely be yourself and then offer that to people and then see where you can go. Last one, appreciate the extended time because it's a really busy time in your life, oh, no obviously. Problem. You're no problem. obviously um, someone that has a lot of people to lean on in terms of stepping into your first head coaching role, For starting, sure. of course, with your father. And you've been at tremendously successful programs, so there's plenty of people there that you can turn to. When you have those conversations mm-hmm. and come to a conclusion on what your first step is here, or maybe you already know it, what do you think that conclusion will be? What will be day one, task one? Day one, task one is I'm – couldn't be more excited about building those relationships we just talked about. It's, uh, I think it's why we're here. It's why I was brought here. It's uh, something that the university does an incredible job of and that I'm really invested in uh, down to my core. So day one, hit the ground running. want to get to know those young ladies that we're going to be with one another and looking to grow with through the course of our relationship and our journey here. And then just seeing where it goes from there. Uh, we're incredibly you, happy to be here Absolutely. with you. We're, we're happy that you're here. We're happy you're taking over. Congratulations once again. Thank Coach. you, We'll Connor. talk with you more down the road, but uh, enjoy the rest of this uh, fresh, new, exciting <laughs> journey right now. I will. I will. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Simon Harris, ETSU Women's Basketball, and we will be right back on Citizen Sidekick. Come here, Sports Network. This responsible gaming message is brought to you by the Tennessee Lottery. When you play the lottery, it's important to play responsibly. Know your limit and spend only what you can afford. Set a budget and stick to it. And remember, as long as you're having fun, you're always a winner in our book. The Tennessee Lottery is a proud supporter of National Problem Gambling Awareness Month. To learn more about problem gambling resources, visit tnlottery.com. Something I inundate Mike Gallagher's Twitter uh, DMs left and right with. One thing you help with on the show, which I really appreciate. First fail. But this is fourth and 54. I had to assume that that was you exaggerating some hyperbole that you know I love so much. You were directing that right towards me because you know I love when people exaggerate and go over the top with completely everything. But no, no, no. Fourth and 54 on air. You did not miss here. It was, for me, the longest third or fourth type conversion I have ever seen in a game. Now, of course, you hear the stuff about like third and 70, third and 80, all that, but I have never personally witnessed something like that. Have you? Fourth and 54, longest ever? Longest ever. I've. I, the only other uh, broadcasting is, I've tried to look it up. I thought one time 
I saw a third and 63 by Miami of Florida, and they actually converted with Lamar Thomas. And I couldn't find – I may have made that up in That's my mind. Me. But I tried to look that up. I actually sent Randy Sanders a message on the drive home and was like, um, Coach, fourth and 54, 11-play drive, went for negative 17 yards. It took 630 off the clock. To lose 17 yards. I mean, Have you ever seen anything like that before? And, of course, he's very good at words. He just wrote never. And I, I, I can't – I've heard occasionally somebody say that at fourth and 50. I've never seen it actually happen. I've never seen a team that needed a 62-yard punt that would have still been two yards shy of a first down. Like, I've never in my entire life saw that until then. That's a great way to put it. I, and, and, and I wish you had that clip because I just said – like, I don't even think Campbell can get it back to the original line of scrimmage. And then he mauled it and, om- and almost got it. He got 62. He almost punted for a first down. He, he kicked the ball 62 yards, and it was still two yards shy of a first down. Oh, many- no, no. Oh, no, I guess he did have a first down because he needed 54 for a first. Because how many yards are you behind center when you punt? 15. So you had to boot it in the air. Well, not necessarily in the air. Maybe you got the roll. But no, it was in the air. He killed it. And there was yards. some wind behind him, but he killed it. So And, and uh, Huzzy was about – five, six yards in front of the original line of scrimmage. So my original thought was, you know, if he kicks it 44 yards, he did great because it's to the original line of scrimmage. Then, of course, if you add the 15 where he's really from, but the punt technically would have gone 44 yards if he gets on scrimmage. No, no. He backed him up to like the nine-yard line before he got it. Can't there be some kind of rule put in place for specific situations like this where if it's like fourth and 60 or 54 or whatever and you punt it and you don't get it back to the original line of scrimmage or don't get a first down with the punt that you have to give away like two or three points or you lose if you're going to receive the second-half kick, you lose that kick or something along those lines because that is a really unique situation. It may create some more urgency on like the third and 25s, third and 30s. Like that would be a fun little wrinkle for me. Now, would we see it often? Clearly not, because you said this is the furthest you've ever seen. Yeah, and it was uh, it, it, it was really started by Brent Thompson pulling a Wesley Miller and losing his mind because he there was a fifteen. I love Wes Miller, especially when he gets you know costs his team a ball game, and then Brent Thompson, I would argue, costs his team a chance to win the game too. Honestly, AJ Caldwell, just a heck of a shot by a heck of a guy. Are you done? Yeah. Okay. So I love. Okay, I'm sorry, <laughs> Wes Miller. So. There was a chop block. It was the second one of the game. Thompson loses his mind. You could tell he wanted the flag because he's just wearing him out. He's not getting off the field. He's just going to stand there until they flag him. So they flag him. So 15-yard penalty, backs up, then goes 30. Then there's a, a, another holding penalty. Then there was a loss of six yards. Then it was 11-yard sack. But it was one of those where it's like, okay, the first 15 yards, it was on a first down play. They could have made up yardage and got a field goal. Because on the next drive, he scored a touchdown. They held again. The game could have played out similar, and they would have had a chance to kick a field goal at the end, which could have changed some of the thought process. It would have changed the complexion of how the end of the game went. But instead, he decided to eat the 15-yard penalty and effectively end the game for his team. So congratulations, Brent Thompson, on that. Second fail. It's a gory scene at UMass. I know you love to see it. Stick with me here because this is from Mass Live. I'm assuming that's some newspaper. Sounds great. Whatever it is, we love him. Matt Vatour writes, Just days after assistant coach Tony Bergeron said he expected to be back with UMass for the 2021-2022 season, UMass Athletic Director Ryan Bamford confirmed Bergeron would not be back. Quote, he's not going to be a part of our coaching staff going forward, said Bamford. According to the terms, blah, 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 he gets a ton of money for not doing anything. Bergeron 
who had been the coach at Woodstock Academy, this is the part you really need to tune in for, in Connecticut, was hired by Matt McCall before the 2019-20 season to help UMass recruiting and brought Woodstock star big man Trey Mitchell with him. Bergeron and Mitchell's mother are engaged. Okay, already getting kind of weird, right? Over the next two seasons, UMass remade its roster with a heavy concentration of Bergeron's former prep players. Seven members of the 2020-21 Minutemen played at Woodstock. That's like almost half your roster. When Mitchell, who was a first-team all-conference and all-academic selection, elected to enter the transfer portal shortly after his sophomore season ended, there were questions about whether Bergeron would say, reached by direct message Monday, Bergeron said he expected to return. Quote, Matt McCall and I spoke, and I'm good at UMass for next season, as per my contract. I'm attached to the whole roster and incoming players as well, not just Trey. Well, you're pretty connected to Trey, considering you're engaged to his mom. The fact that he is leaving UMass, and you now also, by the way, are not back, I think the family dynamics worry me and are more of a fail than anything going on at UMass, though I feel you'll probably see it the other way because you really want to hammer Matt McCall if you're chasing I... Yes, first of all, getting... Is that like when Butch Jones offered the entire team of IMG a few years ago? Like, he just said, all right, we're offering everybody Here's IMG. Here it is, everybody. Like, you get, you have 13 scholarship players. Seven come from the same high school. Or just academy, or what, whatever. That does not seem like a great strategy whatsoever. Um, I'm sure McCall finished, you know, bottom of the pack as he normally does. Uh, as you know, uh, he can. I'll get the exact number. Yes, you know he's he's been a he's been a train wreck everywhere he's been. Yes, he did go to the tournament with uh, Willie Wade's players uh, and all the strong offers. Will made all the players a chat, and then uh, UMass six it. and four in the league, mm. eight and seven overall. They only played fifteen games. Oh, he was smart. He got over five hundred and canceled the rest <laughs> of the game. Congratulations. Could have got out a twenty. Matty McCall. In the year. I blame Matty McCall for the situation. And it's his fault. Fam- family dynamic. I mean, it is pe- pe- me people out, bring coaches, and they want because they either want their kids or they want. But how did players. he get engaged to the kid's mom? But then he was it was it when away, they were so when they were at high school? I would guess. So also weird though, like you're just dating your players' moms. I don't know how I feel about that. If I'm one of the players, I I don't I don't think hey, Mitchell is out of line hey, for getting out of there. Do, do I call you dad yourself? or coach? Yeah, like just <laughs> so weird. I don't. Third fail. Okay. If you want more on it. No, no, you were on a roll there. Uh, it wasn't just the gym that was lacking for the women's basketball tournament in San Antonio. The swag bag, the food, it seemed like everything. Then a tweet said from the official NCAA women's basketball Twitter, quote, this is after probably what, like 48, 72 hours of outrage. The weight room has arrived. Let's go! As if, like, they tried to pass it that's off. Right. Oh, no, it was just late. That's uh, right. There was like, some confusion yeah, and sure, shipping and sure. getting it down there. Uh, Nobody knew where San Antonio is, oh, right? Oh, my God. If it was just a delay, they probably should have put out a statement about that and not just pass it off in a tweet. There's no possible way that that was the case. Clearly, the NCAA, which it has demonstrated in the past, multiple, numerous, continuously, insane amounts of times, they do not care at all about women's sports. Title IX is a complete joke. The NCAA has demonstrated that. And this latest one, it did get a bit more backlash, outrage. Uh, Hopefully things will have changed after this did come to light and went viral on social media. But it was pretty pathetic to see the one rack of weights with, like, a table and then nothing else. And then you look at the men's side, and it looks like that you just walked into, you know, 
the modern day version of a gladiator arena with all of the weights that they had and all the resources that they were given. It was brutal. Big fail on the NCAA, not like it's their first. I just want to know how much the cost difference is in a 500-piece puzzle and a 150-piece puzzle. Because I feel like out of all the skimping you could do, right? Yeah, that I mean, was I interesting. Mean, I mean, because it's looking like, you know, for about 15 to 20 bucks you can get a 500-piece puzzle. Okay. For 12 to 15 bucks you get a 150-piece puzzle. Like, I don't, forget the weight room. We're skimping on puzzles. Like, how, how – three, $3 a kid, I guess, does add up when you're doing that. But I, I was very shocked that that was uh, in the swag bag that uh, – out of all the things that were different, that was the one I really honed in on because I was like, there can't be that much cost difference in those two. Fourth fail. On the men's side, I know that you will love this. Kyle Kerms on Twitter, he is apparently somebody that He's a handicapper. gives insight on this yeah. type of topic. No, Oral Roberts is not going to be in Florida today. That's a response to all of the DMs I have asking. No shot in capital letters. If that happens, mark my words. I'll get an Oral Roberts tattoo. Trust me, I am safe here. Zero chance. This did not go well. As you may have heard, Jay Sandos, and you've got a guy at Oral Roberts, your man that you've been tight with for years and years now, so you're very happy for him. I'm also happy to see Oral Roberts win just to put this guy through the embarrassment. The most embarrassing part, of course, he did get it. Did get the tattoo, and props to him for following through. Oral Roberts does pull the upset. They're still alive in the Sweet 16. Do, do you know what the tattoo said? I'm getting there. The most embarrassing part was the tattoo artist asking me where Oral Roberts University is located, and I had to tell her I didn't know as she was tattooing it to my backside. Really put an expo- exclamation point on the stupidity. And then he does finally tweet a picture of the Oral Roberts tattoo that says exactly that, Oral Roberts tattoo. <laughs> it's phenomenal. Just three words, Oral Roberts tattoo. I mean, that is what he said he would tattoo. Cleverly placed where, just looking at some of the pictures, I don't think many people are going to see it. But uh, and, he does have until, a little Until he gets out of the swimming pool and the That's pants are fair. a little wet and all of a sudden it's down a little more, sure. A little bit bigger sure. of a guy. Maybe they just, yeah. uh, the trunks don't stay up yeah. as well, yeah. So uh, Kyle Kerms, yikes. He should have had to get a tattoo per round, I think, because now we're two rounds in, and your guy Adam, who calls games for them, uh, is, I mean, what? Three wins away, four wins away from a national championship. Is it four? He is, is right? four wins four away from, wins a national away from a national championship. I mean, that, he, that is phenomenal. He, I mean, it's one thing to win one, but to get from a 15 to the Sweet 16, right? First time since uh, Florida Gulf Coast, the old Dunk City. And uh, who who hate? I hated that, by the way. Did you? I hated. Well, I hated Florida Gulf Coast in general, but the. the hey, Sundays. Yeah, yeah, those guys especially, in the old Dunk City, and then the, had the little guy with the bird that would stand there. With, yeah, anyways, all right. Four, it fell down. Okay. Not enough for that. All right, bold predictions. Okay, good. I should have went fifth down. Oh, there we go. I thought we were going to go fifth down. Is that what you said? Tom Brady fifth and sixty-eight for Citadel. No, I just figured so kind of officials they lost down. Absolutely not gonna happen. Clay Thompson, comeback player of the year. Look it. Calling it right now. The season Jim Harbaugh is taking Michigan. Juwan Howard. I said Juwan Howard. You edited that out. I said Juwan Howard. The Southern Conference will be playing football. Just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I've ever heard. It has slowed. It's 
simple wrong would have done just fine. You tell me 10,000 is unattainable at this point? No, it's not unattainable. We are at, uh, let's see here. We So I did 1,000 in January, 500 in February, uh, but there's less days. So. <laughs> so you're planning on doing 500 in the two days that weren't in the month of February? Uh, like, uh, I mean, you read it what you want to. What are we at in March? How many have you done here in March? It's been a busier uh, month. About 350. 350, okay. So you're going to be about 1,000 behind after this month. going to be interesting. Well, now you will have more no. time in the summer. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose you don't have to do necessarily a thousand every. I month. don't have to do a thousand every month. Months. That's right. That's right. That there you go. Like there you go. I mean, technically, if I would have did it properly, I only needed fifty-two weeks. Right? You just needed forty or fifty crunches four times a week. That that was the math I was doing, and it would have got me over. And that was I could have missed days and still got ten thousand. But I'm even slowed on that pace. So. We should probably go back to our New Year's resolution show and do some updates on some other ones too. That's the one that stuck with me for sure. Yeah, that's. For me, too, because... Well, clearly it hasn't <laughs> stuck with you in no. practice. <laughs> it hasn't. My um, prediction, John, you're up 22 and a half tonight. Yeah, and a half. yeah. I can't uh, wait to hear your first one here. ATSU football had 41 yards of rushing offense last week. They will have at least two rushing plays of 41 yards or more this week. Impressive. At least. I think Sailors and Holmes being healthy in the same game. Well, no, Holmes is healthy for the 2018 game, right? Sailors yes. just got involved more. But Sailors had the big day. Holmes had the big day in 2019. Now they're both going to have a big day. Okay. Uh, I'm going five separate players find the end zone. Five separate players. Okay, so let's go back to that is bold. Because let's go back to the Gardner-Webb game again. I need to see how many people scored that game. I don't think it was five. I think it was pretty much all Sailors and Holmes, wasn't it? You had Holmes, Holmes, Sailors, Holmes, Matt Thompson, Sailors. You had three, five. What about the last time I played Western Triple Overtime? What did they have? Ooh, okay. Well, I know Sailors had the last two touchdowns. Uh, it was, what, 2018? Overtime or the Triple Overtime? Triple Overtime. Triple Overtime. Holmes? Wow, we were really yeah, we were behind pretty big at this game. Right? Yes, Tom yes, we were. Herrick, Adkins, yeah. Sailors, four. So four. So we're going to have to put up more than 45 points if the game goes that way. Boom. Oh, baby. There you go. If you have an estimate, I'm not going to put this in bold predictions. I, I wouldn't hold you to this, too. But how many do you think we're going to score? Uh, I thought I, th- I think the score could be something like 38-17. So it would have to be five touchdowns. And a field goal. Oh, yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Uh, Wofford. And defense counts, too, right? Yeah, I can get defense score. Yeah, that's true. true. Tyree Robinson. Special teams. Yeah, Elijah Huzzy gets one. Yeah. That's true. Elijah yeah, that's good. Wofford is playing VMI this weekend, correct? Yes. Wofford by 13 or more. Let me say this. The Herculean effort by Reese Udinsky. And yeah, well, you fill me in on this because I didn't yeah, see it. You okay. sound like Byron Leftwich N- when he was with the Jags. Nobody, Mitchell, nobody told me that. Like, I, They were giving me score updates, and I, I'm assuming people are watching this and are giving me updates. But Udinsky, the next less drive in, the regular, uh, in regulation with about 4.30 to go, Drops back to throw a pass, and then goes. Nobody's around him. He goes down on a non-contact and holds. He's got a heavy brace on one leg and a brace, a decent brace on the other leg. Anything, boom, it's over. That's it. I mean, it Which was. Would be horrible. He was being. It was very gender off the field. The other, uh, the backup who's I've drawn a blank right this second, uh, gets sacked, throws an incomplete. They kick the field goal. Sorry, they punt. They get a turnover. So, Kurt Bloom, your boy's doing play-by-play, right, for uh, there. And they're doing this thing about, well, the only guy can go 45 yards and Udinsky's out. And, you know, you could run the ball and all of a sudden are like, Udinsky's out. 
on a third down play, Udinsky actually has to throw it as he's going down to the ground. And then a touchdown pass, he's throwing as he's going down to the ground. He Then they ran a speed option play. And speed, I'm using quotations here because it was a very belabored two steps to the left and a pitch. And Kurt Bloom is doing the play-by-play is just almost laughing like they're trying to run speed. Like, what are they trying to do to this guy? He can barely stand. And then he goes and throws the touchdown pass. Now, here's the crazy part. I didn't realize they were down six. They threw a touchdown pass, and with a minute 15 to go, they missed extra point. They doink it off the left upright. Jerry Rice doinks it off the left upright. Then, then fourth and three in overtime, down by a touchdown. They don't go for the three yards. They throw an 18-yard touchdown pass and decide to go for two and win the game. I don't know, maybe because Reese can't walk. So I think it's a brilliant pick by you because, uh, I mean, unless Reese has made a miraculous recovery, I, it's going to be very interesting to see, you know, what in the world. But it was odd because it was one of those weird non-contacts that make you – Kind of go, oof, that's not good because generally, right, if it's a non-contact, the knee. So, yeah, that's good. Well, I'm going to go the Mercer Bears have had Chattanooga's number. It's the only team Bobby Lamb could beat consistently, and Mercer's going to go into Chattanooga and upend the Mocs. I thought about that one. I really did. I don't think Mercer's as bad as everyone thinks they are, and I don't think Chattanooga's as good as everyone. It will be Mercer's offense versus Chats' defense will dictate that game. All right, last one for me. Mm-hmm. There were 16 low seeds that won last weekend in the first two rounds of the NCAA tournament. There are 12 games this coming weekend. Tell me what do you think would be bold for number of low seeds to win on the low end? I was thinking three. Low seeds to win. So, uh that would be like Oregon State beating a little Chicago, right? That would be a lower Correct. seed win. Okay, I'm saying your low end would be three. That, that bold, or do I need to go two? Well, three would be bold. Three. It's bold. Well, well, there, and, well and, and I think so because there's a couple that are near each other. Like there's a 6-7. You know, Twelve eight Oregon State. Twelve eight, like yeah. It. But then you still have, you know, to me, a, a one, 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 five, one five, then six seven, right? Six, and you got seven, a one, a one eleven, a one five. I think a one, a one four, one five. You know, I'm more thinking like the six seven, the eight twelve is probably a little four, more one. of a toss up. Seminoles, Wolverines. Yeah, if that's what you're going for with. Sure. All right, can I tell you my other favorite NCAA stat before I give you my last one? Okay. On uh, the first day of the second round. Okay, there was there were eight games, eight different conferences won that game to advance to the Sweet Sixteen. The eight teams that advanced to the Sweet Sixteen were all from different conferences, eight different conferences represented. First time in like it was some bazillion years that that's, that's happened. So, and I think there's twelve if, uh, if my there's or eleven. I'm trying to do the math real quick. Okay. On, uh, conferences represented represented in the Sweet Sixteen. Great question. I think you're about right. So you got two from the Pac-12. Is that it? Uh, no, there's three, three from, from the there's three, three, right. three from the Pac-12. SEC has two. Big Ten, one. Right? ACC has two. Uh, so that would take us down to, what is that, ten? And Creighton, Big East, right? Villanova, Big Oregon East. Oregon State's got four. Uh, it's four for the Pac-12, Oh, it's four. Yeah. Look at that. The left best coast. Best basketball. Maybe, may, maybe I'll the just West do that. The West Coast is the best. Maybe I'll just go uh, that there will be three teams from the West Coast. Uh, no, I'm not going to do 
I was going to say, do you even have a third bowl prediction? No. no you're just, no. just going to say, I'm going to make two and dare you to come back. That is a slap in the face, sir. Yeah. I think there's... You, you want to slap me in the face right now. I do not. Okay. <sighs> you got nothing. You really are just going to stick with two? Syracuse to the final four. Syracuse, yeah. I can see him knocking off Houston. I just, I can't stand Syracuse. I can't either, but Syracuse final four. So you're only really saying that because that's like the one game that I have pulled up that would be a big upset. Uh, Oral Roberts. You're not going to go with Oral Roberts? No, no, no. I'm uh, not going to talk to you. The fi- they've got to win, too. Syracuse has to win, too. Oh, no, I know. Yeah. I know. Okay. I shouldn't talk you into anything because when I talk you out of bold predictions and I give you different ideas. Yeah, to I do win. Good call. Ugh. There right. you go. You're probably an 11-12 matchup, too. Big thanks to Simon Harris. Excited to work. Welcome, Coach. You're welcome. All right, we'll recap uh, the – Five different players scoring a touchdown for ETSU coming up on Tuesday. And get you caught up on our bowl predictions. I'll still be winning. Sandra Sidekick. Buccaneer. Sports Network.